We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today formed one half of the greatest double play combination of all time. He played 19 years in the majors, appearing in five all-star games, winning four gold gloves and three silver slugger awards. He was also a key member of one of the most dominant teams in major league history, the 1984 Detroit Tigers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Lou Whitaker. Lou, welcome. Thank you. Good to have you on, Lou. Um, yeah, so I, I love to just, you know, kind of jump right into to an athlete's background. You're, you're born in Brooklyn, but fairly early on in life, you moved down to Virginia, um, specifically Martinsville, Virginia, where you're uh, raised and where you go to high school. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up in Virginia and your high school years. Well, growing up in Martinsville was uh, uh, really exciting as a as a young child. My grandmother had a, a big yard, and uh, all the kids in the neighborhood, and we're talking about very young, all the kids in the neighborhood, we would gather there, we would play every kind of ball, softball, baseball, football, we probably even tried to put basketball goals around, you know, from time to time. We we uh, we we played and set up uh, uh, areas where we could play ball all the time. That's that's why I'm so so athletic, you know. And and uh, you know, as we grew up playing in the neighborhood, we had lots of lots tons of kids. So it's not like uh, we were lacking in kids or anything, you know, never having somebody to play a position or anything like that. So that was great. Um, I remember the first time I ever uh, tried out for organized uh, baseball at 10 years of age. We had just went out to make some money raking leaves during the summertime. And on my way back home, one of the kids in the, na- uh, kids in the uh, recreation baseball, they were trying out. And so one of the guys uh, said, go down, Lou Witt, go down and show him how to do it. So I go down on the baseball field and get down on my knees, you know, making a play at shortstop. You know, everybody was at shortstop. And we make a play and throw the ball to first base. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, uh, an organizational Little League baseball team gave me a call. It's Reeves Theater. And that's my first experience in organized baseball. And, you know, over the years, I continue to uh, play baseball. That was my, my f- probably my favorite of all the sports. I mean, I love football, but I just wasn't the, uh, you know, I didn't, wasn't that contact player, you know. I mean, uh, I could outrun guys, throw the football further, do all of that. But when it comes to, uh, you know, getting hit and, and, and tackling wrong and getting hit in the head and wake up a little dizzy, <laughs> love to watch Major League Baseball on TV. So 
learned quite a few, you know, quite a bit of things back in those days. Yeah. Who, who are the guys you like to watch? Who was your team growing up in Virginia? Well, we got an opportunity for the most part to see the Cincinnati Reds and the Baltimore Orioles. Orioles. So whoever played those two particular teams, that's who I saw, you know, in Virginia. And because back in those days, you only got game of the week on a Saturday. Sure. But, you know, I saw, you know, the Cincinnati Reds play all the National League teams. I saw Baltimore Orioles play all the American League teams. But, you know, just watching Cincinnati Reds and the Baltimore Orioles and those, those managers that they had back in those days, Earl Weaver, Weaver and Sparky Anderson, you know, uh, and then me having the opportunity to play with Sparky Anderson, that was amazing. And yeah. the thing about it, the Baltimore Orioles were scouting me out of high school. And, uh, you know, uh, they was going to draft me in the uh, fourth round. But they decided to, they wanted to, they didn't think any team had any interest in me besides them. So they wanted to draft a pitcher. I think it was a left-handed pitcher in the fourth round and then get me in the fifth round and the Tigers beat them in the fifth round. And and the um, the scout who was looking at you um, was a guy named Wayne Blackburn, right? Yeah, and, he, was, he was one of them. Okay, he was one of the scouts for the Tigers. And then Bill LaJoy was kind of a senior front office guy, uh, you know, kind of head scout type guy. The two of them, you you were basically planning to go to Ferrum College and and continue playing in college. And then they and then Detroit jumped in and drafted you, and you decided, all right, I'm going to go down this path. Right. Uh, I really didn't want to go to no, no more school, just graduating. And the uh, uh, only thing I really liked in school back then was English and math and lunch, physical education. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I definitely didn't want to go back. Uh, saying that I was going to go to school was really to try to get the Tigers to maybe up a little bit more money, something mm -hmm. like that. But, uh, you know, I thought about it even then. And, you know, if I would have went to college, it may have been the biggest mistake in my life. You know, I mean, I might have gotten to college and, you know, I may have went to school and they say, well, Lou, we got a guy that's a senior. We want him to play his senior year and then you can play the following. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I would have been and, and it's nothing wrong with sitting on the bench and watching if, if I don't deserve to play. You know, I can I can I can understand that. But uh, if I'm the best player and then just watching maybe a senior play ahead of me, I decided to sign. And, and, and I did sit on the bench for the Tigers for the first week, uh, you know, because, you know, they had already played about almost half their season because I signed late, you know. Is it the big team in Bristol, Virginia? Yeah. Yeah, in Bristol. And I, I mean, I probably sat for the first two weeks. And then they got rained out a game. And then Bill LaJoyce told me he came by me that day because he stayed down there almost those, the whole two weeks. He said, he says, all right, tomorrow we're playing a double hitter and you have the second game. So be ready. You know, so that was my first game. And I mean, I really didn't light it up in, 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 in rookie ball or anything. You know, it was, it was new being away from home for the first time. And uh, in new experience, and everybody is talented. When you're drafted, you pretty much have the best players from high schools all around the country. You know what I'm trying to say? And then you also have uh, college players also that they're interested in. So the competition is a, a lot different. So there was a lot of learning for me. And uh, But at the end of that uh, rookie season, my uncles come to pick me up. And, you know, from Martinsville to Bristol is about three and a half hours or so. And so my one first thing my uncle says, <laughs> what very nice. He said, oh, you, you didn't do too good, did you? You know what I mean? I, you know, and I'm just sitting in the back because, you know, I had about three uncles come and pick me up. And I just, you know, listened to him, uh, you know, and, you know, it wasn't nothing to brag about. You know, I mean, I just left high school and I think I hit him like, 614 or something like that in high school. And uh, if uh, and uh, 
hit like 10 home runs or whatever, you know, eight, eight to 10 home runs, you know, in 12 games. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I thought about it and then I just told him, that's all right. I'm going to go home, prepare myself. When I go back to spring training next year, I'll do better. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so uh, that next year, actually, the Tigers sent me a contract sending me back to Bristol. And so, uh, you know, I'm I'm back in Bristol, uh, back in Florida, back with the uh, Bristol team, you know, just working out, you know, the four fields. And uh, about, I guess, two weeks into spring training, Jim Leland, you know, the whole organization get together, but Jim Leland decides to make me the uh, third baseman and the guy that had already played the year before with Leland in Clinton, Iowa. Leland was leaving Clinton, Iowa, and A-ball, the lower A-ball team, and now he's going to coach the higher A-ball team down in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, that's where all the, you know, the top top players in the A-ball were back in them days. But anyway, uh, so the third baseman, he becomes the designated hitter. And so that's how I get my opportunity to go from rookie ball, uh, Bristol team to uh, to the Lakeland team in spring training. And, you know, you know, Leland worked with, you know, worked with me. Uh, you know, we're, you know, just going through the things, but they saw what I could do or the potential. You know, I was I was a guy who vocal. I mean, you believe it or not, you know, I mean, I, when, when the ball is hit around me and things needed to take place around me, you know, I was verbal, you know, I, 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 I yell, you know, I sometimes say you cut off people and uh, guys, you know, give instructions by, you know, let people know what you want to do, you know, cut three, cut two, cut home, cut, you know, whatever. Sure. I got it. You know, all of these things, you know, sometimes guys just, get up under a ball and just assume that they have it, you know, and then you have all of this confusion and crashing in each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. So, but, but when you speak and you're verbal and you talk amongst your, your teammates, you, you know, you get, you get the job done better. You lessen uh, accidents, collisions, you know, you play the game. The game is played right by communication. Baseball is a game of communication, really. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I went to Florida State, played in Florida State uh, League that year, 1976, and ended up being the most valuable player down there that year. You and won we, the we, we won it. Yeah, we won that championship this, uh, there. So, you know, that year I got in after many, many years after I retired from baseball and whatever, uh, they told me I was inducted into the Lakeland Hall of Fame. So I think I got about four Hall of Fames except the real one. You know what I mean? I got okay. New York Hall of Fame. I got Detroit, Michigan Hall of Fame. I got Lakeland Hall of Fame. Only thing I don't have is Major League Baseball Cooperstown Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? It'll come. It's going to come. Yeah. Um, yeah. But and so, so a couple of questions. So, so in Lakeland, you play for Jim Leyland, and it's amazing. The, almost like 90% of your career, you play for Sparky Anderson. You also play for Ralph Houck, who won a couple World Series with the Yankees. And you play for Leland in the minors. Tell me a little bit about Jim Leyland. Always a pretty salty guy. And then also, it's after that season where you're the MVP, where they decide, we're going to move you to second, which obviously, you know, changes everything for you. Um, tell me about Jimmy Leyland and or Jim Leyland and, and tell me about uh, the move to second. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, uh, that one year, I only played one year with, uh, you know, Leland, uh, in that Lakeland, Florida State League. But, you know, he was just, a, he was, a, you talk about somebody verbal and uh, he loved to win. I'm going to start it off that way. He just, he won, he was, he had that winning mentality as a manager. And, uh, he didn't pick any bones about it. I mean, if you wasn't playing good, you can see a destructive clubhouse. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> yeah. we were winning down in the Florida State League. This is one that I'll never forget. I mean, I tell you everything how it went, but I'm going to tell you, you know, as much as I, you know. Uh, <laughs> we were uh, we were winning, 
in Florida State League. But we ran into a losing streak. I don't know how many games. We could have lost two, three, four. Who knows? Uh, back then, we lost uh, four, say, four games in a row. And so we got rained out. And uh, uh, he came by and checked on all of our rooms. I don't know what he was there for, but he just came by our dorms where we were staying. And I'm with four other guys. And I peeped through the hole, and I just opened up the door. And, you know, we were up to no good, so to speak. <laughs> and Leland saw that. And uh, he didn't say anything because we'd start winning, I suppose, again. But say a week later, we started to lose a few more games. And in the clubhouse, we were having a meeting. And he basically broke one of the lockers, you know, you know, yelling and screaming. And he said, and about you guys that, you know, that he saw what we were doing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that was just a funny moment, you know, a, a moment that Lou Whitaker would never, ever forget in his life because I'm the one to open up the door. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> Leland out here, our manager, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but... You know, I got a chance after Tram was managing the Tigers and then they brought in Leland, uh, you know, and I, I I was still working, you know, with the uh, team a little bit, you know, just just hanging around the ballpark, around players, wearing the, Whitaker in the name on the back, basically, uh, Tiger, you know, from the history. And so um, just watching how he manages and goes about his business. You know, I could see that same intense managerial skills that I saw in 1976 with uh, the Lakeland Tigers. But, you know, Leland went on to manage Pittsburgh Pirates and he was a winner there. So really everywhere he went, the words that I always, I always remember about Leland as a manager is he's a winner. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he can one with the Marlins. He can put any body together and win. You know, it was just the way I was as a little kid. We play, get you get you two or three great players that know how to play the game, and you put together other people on that team. They may not be the greatest, but they're smart enough, they have the skills enough to learn from these few that's you you know they're superstars on your team yeah you know they just they're just great and those other players will play around them and that's what Leland did everywhere he went he could take he could take those few guys and he's going to get the best out of them he's not going to let them slack he's going to get their their best but what it does it just makes that team better and yeah. everywhere he goes, that's why I call him a winner because, you know, he can make moves during the course of a game. And and, and usually, you know, they turn out to be the best move. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. As you're going into double A with Montgomery, they've moved you over to second and they've paired you with Alan Trammell. And you guys played together for the first time in a full season in 77 in double A. You're both all-stars. You win the championship. There's obviously something between you two, like a, a chemistry. And you both come up at the end of that season. And you make a debut together at Fenway in September of 77. And then in 78, you both make the big roster. And by May, you're starting. And Ralph Houck, who's in his last year, basically says, you know, Lou makes, every, makes plays that very few second basemen can make. He sees this when you're like, you know, a rookie. And he says, you know, you and Trammell together are the best I've ever seen at this age. Pretty high praise from a guy who managed the Yankees to a couple World Series championships in the 60s. And played with some uh, good shortstop second base, but two back in those days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so so how your manager and you guys have a winning record, but the American League East is brutal. And so you, you, you're 10 games over 500, but you guys finish in fifth. You're the rookie of the year. You beat out. I mean, it's an incredible rookie year. It's you and Trammell and Paul Molitor and Carney Lansford. I mean, the top, the top four vote getters. That's that's about as impressive a rookie prop as you're going to get. Um, 
and and you and Trammell are now established as as the the second baseman and shortstop for the next 19 years. And and then the next year, about I don't know, roughly halfway through the season, Sparky Anderson comes in. He's obviously had this incredible run with the Reds, and he's now your manager, and he comes in. What's that like? You know, first of all, those early days playing with Trammell, like, did you guys both like, I think we've got something here. And also, what was it like when Sparky came in? Well, in uh, 1976, after the seasons end for the uh, minor leagues, yep. they have, they had, I don't know if they still call it the winter league baseball. So anyway, we are invited both because Tram is a, well, we're both the high, high picks in the organization because sure. usually that's where they're, they're bonus babies. You know, they, they, they just, they're getting extra, some work together. The organization is looking at all their bonus babies from rookie ball to triple A where they have all their investments. And basically they're looking at all of them at one time, just work as a, as a, uh, as a team, you know what I mean? Just, just, they have their eyes on everybody at, at the same moment. So, uh, so now I'm a second baseman. They brought in, uh, uh, well, it was just uh, Leland. I think they brought in, they might've brought in Brinkman in, in, in that, uh, that winter league because he was our manager. They, got, they hired Brinkman too, managed Trammell and myself. Sure. And Brinkman is basically the middle infielder from the years past, just watching us play to get together and just basically giving back Tiger feedback. Sure. Do they have the skills? Do they this? Do they need that? You know, how are they, how are they doing together? You know, basically he's the eyes and ears for the Tigers. And uh, uh, actually Brinkman helped me because there were some things I had never played second base I had a lot of learning to do. So Brinkman taught me just a few things that I needed to know. Really, having a lot to learn doesn't mean that you need to learn a lot. It's just those, for me, positioning, turning a double play. See, for instance, when I first started as a second baseman, I may have gotten too close to second base when I'm trying to make a double play. So everything is collision, the runner, me, shortstop, everything. So I needed, Brinkman told me, no, don't get so close, back off. You know, so when you give your feed, shortstop is coming across the bag so he can make his play also. So that was something that he shared with me once, twice, I got it. So now I know never to get in, in that traffic, you know what I mean? Uh, working with Tram, we worked that winter down in St. Petersburg, Florida. That's where we were uh, stationed. And Tram and I, we wake up, go to the ballpark. We're dressed on the field, exercise. We take our infield. We work half hour every day together, turning double plays. I mean, we just work, 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 work. Then we, we, we would play a game against other baseball teams. They're bonus babies. They're top prospects, guys who had a good year, get invited. And so now you have all this talent playing together and against each other. Who's going to be the next you know, <laughs> big guy in the big leagues. Who's going to be? Who's going to be in the big leagues? Who's whose future? Who's destined? Destined is, is it, it, who's showing that promise to be the next major league baseball player. Sure. And so, you know, tr you know, and just speaking about Tram and his ability. I mean, you know, from the time, you know, I always knew some skill when I see a, an athlete, you know, I, I just, you know, get that feel. You, you work with him, you play with him. You say, man, this guy's got it smart also about the game. And, you know, Tram, I mean, he just had it. I mean, Tram, he was just consistent. Uh, he knew how to play the game. He loved the game. Only thing Tram had to do was just get stronger. I mean, 
you know, as you got older, because both of us just little skinny little rails, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, uh, how big do you have to be to play baseball? You know, you got a bat in your hand, you know how to hit a ball, you know how to catch a ball, hey, that's all it takes. You know? It don't take no uh, Goliath, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> don't take no big guy like so to hit a baseball like these guys are today. You know, I look at the generations today, matter of fact, you know, and, you know, shoot, guys were Six feet. They were considered six one, six two. They were considered huge back in those days. You know, 180, 190 pounds. You didn't find many guys over 200. Now everybody is six three, six four, six six, six eight, two ten, two thirty. You know these guys. You know today. You know, just 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 it's a different game. You know, and finally the guys uh, they woke up. They don't have to go and pr- pursue. Uh, football and basketball to make the money. You know what I mean? Maybe back then they didn't make the money in baseball, but once baseball started to take off with the dollar bill, athletes started to say longer lasting money. You know, they start to see things the way I used to see them. You know, so, you know, being a second baseman, I didn't like it at first, but it turned out to be the best uh, decision for me, because like I said, I was on 100 and shit, I played my whole career probably around 160, uh, five, you know, e- even at my highest weight. And then when I got a little, you know, in my uh, maybe 35 or so, uh, started to, you know, settle a little bit. And, you know, but I got up to, you know, put on a little weight, you might say, you know, 170, you know, but. You know, I mean, being at 160 back in those days, you know, I probably 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 wasn't a major league third baseman. You know, I mean, I had the skills, the desires, I could catch, I had the hands, the quickness, all of that. But and then you know, there were some third basemans that wasn't all that big now. But I'm just I'm just saying. And once I left third uh, third base to be at be at second base, I lost all that quickness. You know what I mean? Because once one year I went to third base and, you know, just after years of playing second base, let me go over to third base, see what it'd be like. You know, I'd go over to third base and, you know, I'm back in where I used to be growing up. So walking fuss hit me a couple balls down third base. I said, let me go back to second base. You know, (laughs) Put it all in a nutshell. Second base was the best move for me. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's interesting too. I mean, like, you know, to the casual observer, you don't pick up on some of the nuances. Like Kirk Gibson was saying about you at second base. He said, you know, I watched him for all those years and I realized he had five different throws on the double play. You, you know, you had the stand on the base and you, you had the fall back, you had the sweep across the front, you had the fall off to the right. You know, you he said, no second baseman has five different throws from the bag on the double play. And no, oh, by the way, this was in an era when guys were coming in hard, cleats high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's just, you know, very interesting, like, you know, kind of the nuance that you pick up in your switch. Well, the thing about it, I did not want to let certain guys, certain teams know exactly everything that I was doing, you know, I didn't want to set a, a pattern because mm-hmm. that's what we do as athletes. As we get experience under our belt, things could become easier. You know, I mean, it, it, we've done it so much, it becomes like second nature. You know what I mean? I could go up and to a bat sometimes. And before I even, as soon as I step in the batter's box, I basically know here comes a curveball. you know, cause you, 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 You've played, you see how they may switch up, you know, from here to this, you know, this way, that way. So, I mean, sometimes you get in the box, you know, you know, you don't look back at the catcher, but you can feel the catcher moving. You know what I mean? Yeah, you just feel yeah. like, oh man, it, it's almost like I'm turning around and looking at the uh, catcher move. It's like, you just moved on me, but you're watching the pitcher, but you can feel it move. You know, you can, you know, you just feel the move here, there. And now they sit back there and they try to, you know, hit their glove and then they'll move over, they'll go over this way, but then they'll slide over that way. So it didn't make any difference when they do it. You could just, you could feel a move where it's almost like they were touching you. Now they're away from you. So, you know, the pitch is outside, but 
you know, you don't get caught up into those because you don't ever want to get caught leaning over the plate, you know, because sometimes they might cross you and say, okay, let's just go over here. But you throw the ball inside and see what happens. You know what I mean? And yeah. so now you know, you know where it's coming, but now you've put yourself in a situation like, oops, bad mistake. So my, my thing I learned from some hitters over the years, you have to protect your part of the plate, but then you give the pitcher his part of the plate. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't try to take all of it away like these guys do today. Right. These guys are six feet, five, six, six, two, six, three. I don't care, but they're 180, 200 pounds. They're standing on top of the plate. And Darren, and like you said, about not being able to break up a double play today, you can't go out, out after a guy. Well, if a pitcher pitches a guy inside, and if he throws even th- anything even inside, guy look at him like, you tried to hurt me, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was a, just an up-and-in pitch. But, I mean, back in the day, if you looked at a pitcher, if he threw you inside and you looked at him like, oh, you trying to hit me? Next pitch might just hit you. You know what I mean? <laughs> they, they knock you down just because you try to intimidate them as yeah. a pitcher. See, hitters are basically intimidating. I never thought about this before. Hitters are basically intimidating pitchers to pitch them inside. You see, they they are basically intimidating because when the, you throw a pitch in and they look at you like that, it's almost like, oh, I'm the pitcher like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to pitch you like that. No, the aggressive pitcher, he pitch you inside. You don't like it. Here comes another one. You know what I mean? You know, aggress, aggressive is, 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 is part of this game. So I'm already aggressive. Yeah, I'm Everything ready. My I do in ready. this game is already aggressive. Anything that's take place on this field, it could be aggressive. Yeah. And so I'm already prepared. Love it. Let me ask you about those early Tigers teams, those first couple of years you're there. One guy who, I mean, you talk about a shooting star and you missed the big season with him, but you were there for a couple of years where he tried some comebacks. Mark Fidrich. I'm just curious, did you have, you know, much interaction with him? He was such an... Like that one season was so incredible, 76, and then the injuries got him. But he did, you know, pitch a few different times while <clears throat> while you were on the team. Curious your take on Mark Fidrich and also Ron LaFleur, who, of course, is one of those incredible stories, had spent time in jail, comes out, becomes an all-star, uh, you know, great second, uh, a great uh, uh, outfield yeah. and, and, and base stealer. Um, curious your take on Fidrich and LaFleur. Well, Mark Fidrich, you talk about a wild guy, man, uh, and 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 goes with him, Dave Rosema. Can you imagine having two of them on the same team? I didn't really sure. know Bird that much, but he did come to spring uh, that winter uh, league in 1970, 1976. He was rookie of the year in 76. Did he get hurt in the end of that year? Anyway. Either end of 76 or early 77, he got hurt. He got he got hurt, and so anyway, he came he came down just just for some therapy, I suppose, rehab, do some rehab, sure. and he was only there for uh, uh, three or four days. That's the first time I saw uh, Fidrich, but he had such a, a great year, his rookie year, that uh, you know he was just well known. Just he he. he he made a mark in 1976, a mark in the mark, right? Yeah. He made his mark in 76. And just, uh, you know, and you know, just what I heard is he's just joking around in the outfield and accidentally stepped in one of those drainage holes they have in Tiger, Tiger Stadium. They used to have a drainage hole in right field, a big one in center field, and then they had one out around left field taking batting practice sometimes i'd be out there and i look i'm like wow man somebody killed themselves out here you know with these drain because 
you had it a, a little dip in that just danger it. because I'm just standing out there. I'm like, I mean, I know what danger looks like. I mean, running full speed and all of a sudden you step down below and maybe even your cleat get caught into some of that stuff. They had a little cover over it, but it was dangerous. I know it was dangerous. Anyway, he, he was messing around and that's how he uh, messed up his leg, I think, you know, pulled a hamstring, something like that. Now he's pitching, you know, and I'm just assuming he's throwing. And now one injury caused him to hurt his arm, you know. Mechanics get thrown off. Yeah. So that was just the end of it, basically end of his career. He tried for the next three years. Tiger kept him in the organization uh, trying to rehab year after year. I guess they kept him another two years. And finally, they let him go. And, you know, now he's out. And then Boston gives him a chance because he lives in Boston. And he just, you know, just just not able to recover from that injury. So that injury just destroyed his career. And I think, yeah. you know, he had a promising career after that, that one season. I mean, like I said, he was well known throughout the league. Uh, you know, he just made his name. So he would have been a drawing card every every day after that, you know, uh, yeah. I played, uh, that year, 1978, he was the starting pitcher. And I think he got one out in the first inning and he had to walk off the field. They came and got him, you know? So, I mean, I played one or two outs mm. first inning, 1978 opening day in Detroit. And he walked off the field and he never returned to major league. Uh, mm. uh, you know, that we, everybody knew uh, yeah. was expecting to the bird to return. And then for LaFleur, you know, his movie, one in a million. And what a uh, what story that yeah. was. I remember uh, back, back in the years, we were coming off the road or something like that. And they were in tiger stadium making that movie. So they had uh Roy Snyder, uh, LeVar Burden, they were in, the, in that cast. They were in, in Tiger Stadium uh, going over scenes uh, to, uh, to do that movie, uh, One in a Million. Uh, and uh, so we got a chance to meet, meet that crew there. But Ron LaFleur had the speed, uh, you know, base stealer. I mean, Ronnie, shoot, he hit 300, I guess, a few years. Yeah. And uh, got 200 hits a few years. I mean, that's that's remarkable in itself. Uh, he could cover some ground. Ronnie had some speed now, and you could hear him coming too. You know, like like a locomotive. You know, he could he could run. And so yeah. me and Gates Brown, Gates Brown used to we used to, as we would sit on the bench and watch him go up to bat. Gates Gates used to say some things about different people. So I got a chance to sit down and listen to him and laugh with him. Because he would he would tell me some things that I don't think anybody knows but me, and uh, I didn't make make a difference who who is saying it about. It could be something about Lafleur. It could be something about Sparky. It could be something about anybody. Gates Brown would say it, you know. And so I sit down and I just listen and laugh, and <laughs> uh, and uh, learned a lot of things. He taught me how to become a, actually a power hitter because, you know, I was a, just a singles hitter, hit the ball up the middle, go the other way, pull the off-speed pitch occasionally. But uh, Gates recognized that I had to, you say, little man, you can hit a ball 400 feet left field. You know, you can do this, you can do that. He said, man, look down this right field line and this overhanging Tiger Stadium. He said, man, I could teach you this or that. And I said, hey. And, uh, so one day I said, okay, you know, we, we went out and we worked and he told me, say, now we'll keep practicing on it until you're ready. I said, I'm ready today. I went out, hit a home run, pulled it, hit a double off the 375 right field. So that day I became basically a more um, aggressive hitter. I mean, you're aggressive by, you know, hitting the ball hard up the middle, going the other way. It don't, you, you know, you're not just lagging because – you half swing, ball get popped up in the air. You know, anytime you hit aggression, you hit it, you've got, you got force. Yeah. You know, so I used to, I used to like blow up, you know, my, 
you know, when I, and, and then ex, 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 explode, you know what I mean? Just push, you know, and it ain't, you're not just up there waving, you know, smile like you're smiling and waving. No, it's a, it's aggression. Get on top of that ball, hit it through the infield because I don't know, you know, you know, I think about it, you know, I probably could have had 3000 hits, but just imagine I would have, I would have had 3000 hits. I would, I would have taken away 3,000 hits. You can't have it all, Lou. You know what I mean? So what you do? I play defense. You know, I, 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 I learned to hit. I, you know, whether you know it, believe it or not, I hit when we're down, when we need hits, clutch hits. I mean, I had a knack for that. I mean, if I'm being you, five to one, going into the ninth, I don't need any more hits. You know, my, my aggression is there. My aggression is defense. Play mental defense. That's that's where my 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 thought is now. But uh when we're down, my aggression is there. We're gonna win this ball game. We're gonna get back in this ball game. Get some people on base. I'm coming through. Yeah. Boom. We're in the game again. You know, so my whole career was like this. Sparky told me one day, he said, Lou. You know, and he, he probably didn't know how many home runs he hit. I hit 244 or so in my career. He says, Lou, every home run that you hit either puts us in the game, wins the game, or does something has meaning in the game. Every right. home run. You, so you could take 244 home runs I, I hit. And I, I believe it too. 200, because I didn't hit home runs when we were down. I mean, right. I started doing after. I realized this, you know, I started hitting some home runs at the end of my career when we were losing and winning because I had, had that home run swing in my mind now. But you could take 230 of the home runs. They had some meaning to it. Yeah. I mean, well, Frank, White, Frank White, the, the very, you know, excellent second baseman for the Kansas City Royals for, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 years. He said the thing about Lou was, he always got the big hit and he always made the big defensive play. And he said, when, whenever we'd roll into Detroit or Detroit would come into KC, he's like, I always wanted to compare myself to him. I always wanted to match up against him uh, because he had that knack for the big play, whether it's with the bat or the glove. What a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. From Frank White. So, so, so your team, so your first, you know, whatever, five, six years, you guys are winning every year, but you're like in third or fourth place every year too. You're, you know, you're putting up great records but the team is building. Lance Parrish joins behind the plate. Kirk Gibson, uh, Jack Morris, Dan Petrie are starting to come around on the mound. Um, obviously, you and Trammell. You bring in Chet Lemon from the Chicago White Sox. Larry Herndon comes in. You guys you know, start to have, you, you know, you, you hit for power, you hit for average, you got speed, great pitching. By the time 84 rolls around, you guys know you're good. Going into that season, are you guys looking around thinking this is going to, we've got this this year, this is going to happen? Because the start you guys had was incredible 35 and five out of the gate. Well, Tell me about year, you, know, in, you know, in 83, we won like 96 ball games. Yep. And the thing about it, Baltimore Orioles won 102, somewhere in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So we end up finishing about six games behind them, but 96 ball games, wow. But the thing about it, we beat Baltimore more than they beat us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the year I had like 200 hits. Tram had 200 hits. Uh, we were beating Baltimore. I mean, we were beating Baltimore. We were beating the best team. Yep. And I think that they won the World Series that year. Yes, they did. Yeah, we they were did. beating the best team in, the, in baseball that year. So we knew where we stood as a team, we're, we're, we're the better team. We're better than Baltimore. Although Baltimore was, you know, that was the year that every time they were down, this is where that three, as Earl Weaver say, the big three run home run came in their bench. You couldn't, if they were down, you, you, you they would have low and steam, uh, uh, there were they had they had a, 
uh, Renicky. Renicky, <laughs> you know, yeah. Come back. One on the left side, one on the right side, and they would come up and hit a big three-run home run off the bench to win a ball game, you know. But we were playing with them, so we know we could we could play with them. So the uh, uh, the next year, we just picked up where we left off. We got, uh, I guess, we may have lost a lot of games uh, late late uh, in the ninth or so, and so we got. Hernandez. And so he he was the difference maker for us, but because we could play with anybody, but it was one thing we were missing was the uh, closer. And uh, uh, we had Enos Cabell at first base and he had a great year, but they were looking for a left-handed power hitter. So they went and got Daryl Evans to play first base and that fourth hitter that they were looking for. And then they went and got the year before they got Johnny Grubb and Dave Bergman. So, you know, now Sparky, he's, he's, he's got his everyday players. Now he needs his closer. He needs his bench, experienced bench. And we had a few rookies coming through, Howard Johnson, Marty Castillo, Barbaro Garbay, you know? So, you know, he's got his everyday experienced players. He's got these young kids. And usually you don't put no young kids on the bench, you know what I mean? But our young kids were, they were all third basemen, but we had the veteran third baseman, Tommy Brookins. So they were trying to put Howard Johnson at third base. But Sparky still lacked confidence in him as an everyday player, you know. And then he would try Marty Castillo over there. And Marty, you know, he'd have his up and down days, you know, a little here, there, you know, maybe it might say inconsistence, you know, inconsistencies. So this is when Tommy Brookins takes over again and basically becomes the everyday third baseman. Mm-hmm. And so Brookins is there and Tram gets hurt that year, early in the year. I mean, he's a designated hitter. And so they brought up, we brought in, uh, or Tigers brought in uh, Doug Baker. And Doug, you know, he got hits when we needed him, but his thing was excellent shortstop. Sparky wasn't worried about, hey, we need you to hit. You need to do this. You need to. Sparky basically said, you just make plays a shortstop. You know, you just you just do that. You if you do that, you can't do no wrong. You can't do no. You can hit a hundred and play with these guys right here because these guys are gonna carry the you know, that they're going to carry you. Right. You just, you just play shortstop. You just, you just right. do the best you can at shortstop. And, and so, you know, and that's what I compliment uh, Doug Baker. I compliment him all the time about his, uh, his performance as a uh, shortstop that year. And he sure. just, he swallows it up. He just eats it up, you know, because he, he, he sees that he meant something on that team. He wasn't oh, yeah. just there as a, uh, you know, hey, he 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 meant a lot to our team. I mean, you may say he was very valuable on the defensive side because you know you can't just put anybody at shortstop. You know what I mean? Sure. And so Doug Baker did an excellent, uh, uh, excellent job uh, playing uh, shortstop that year. Until yeah. Tramp came, I think he stayed up, uh, played shortstop until uh, you know. I think Tramp. May have come back late July, something like that, you know. Okay. But I think Tramp got got well by in in July. And if he missed the whole season, you know, Baker just that just shows how well he played uh, shortstop that whole year. Yeah. He did an excellent job. I tell him, I tell him all the time. He, he, you know, we were the double play combination <laughs> pretty much that year. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and yeah, then- we uh, we started off great, great. We uh. 35 and five. That's, uh, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then, and then you guys, you, you blow through Kansas city in the playoffs, you win uh, three, nothing. And then you're playing the Padres and it's, it's just, I, I think I saw Lance Paris talking about this. You, I think I think on the first pitch of game one, you double, you hit a double. Mm-hmm. And so you're standing on second Trammell comes up after you on his first or second pitch he sees, he he sink, he drives you in. Now you're up one nothing, three pitches into the series. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's, 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 
Well, really, that's how our whole season went in 84. Yeah. We would we would score, we'd score sometimes three runs in the in in the first inning. It was all pitching and defense the rest of the game. We got into a few where we, you know, had some, you know, big days like Toronto Blue Jays. They were, they were like most people don't understand. We were 35 and five. Blue Jays were 30. Like uh, thirty-two games and 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 and, and uh, uh, eight or something like that, you know, yeah. whatever. But you know, they were they were right on our back. They were right there, yeah, the, all the way through. And like I say, just like the uh, Orioles had their bench guys come off and come up with those big hits. Dave Bergman, Johnny Grubb, and all those guys, big big hits for us in the, the following year. And, sure. uh, but yeah, and, and that's what it took. I mean, that's, we just had a team that, uh, it was our year. You may basically just boil it down. It was a Detroit Tiger year because we played good defense. We had good pitching. We had solid relief pitching. Guys did wonderful job, excellent job coming off the bench. Sparky used them excellently. And, uh, well, and, and you, know, you- you had a great line too, talking about you know the story of that year was so many times you guys would get out to an early lead and then it was just pitching in defense the rest of the way. In that first game, you guys get that early run, and then it's the seventh inning and it's still a close game. You're up three two. Kurt Pavakwa comes up and and nails one into right. And for anybody listening, pull up the the YouTube clip of this. It is you know everybody always talks about the Dave Parker throw in the All Star game you know, where he nails, uh, nails the guy at home plate. Well, mm. the, the throw from Gibson to you and you turn around and whip it to third to get Bavakwa at a huge point in the game, three, two, if he's standing on third, that game's going to be tied up and it's just textbook, you know, Gibby to you and you to third. It's a great clip. I mean, you know, as much as the offense stands out, that's a hell of a defensive play at that time. That that was a that was a it was a turning moment there because that ball was hit down in San Diego right field. He being a right-handed hitter hits that ball down the right field line, and that ball goes into the bullpen down in there. Ricochets around and gives it. it just so happened it comes out and Gibby gets it, and Gibby throws it in. Yes, and you know I'm I'm, I'm you know and as the ball is hit, I'm looking. You know I'm I'm, I'm eyeing and looking at the 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 the, the speed of the runners. And so I'm looking and I'm saying to myself, basically as they go and I'm keep looking and I'm saying to myself, there's no way I'm going to get this guy at home play. So he's out of my mind. He's, he's not even, he's not even going to be part of this throw. Sure. But I'm, I'm listening and I'm sort of saying to myself because of the crowd, they're continuing to, race their voices, you know what I mean? It's basically they're telling me he's going to third, he's going to third, he's going to third. So basically say, Lou, go to third, cut him down because, and that was, that was it. But you know, if if it was somebody else and if I looked and say, oh, I got a chance to get this guy at home. See, I would have, I would have come up and went home, but you know, I'm looking at it and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get this guy at home. So yeah. that's like a wasted throw. You know, sometimes you just watch a guy come up and throw the ball home and say, why you throw the ball home? Then the guy's first base goes down to second base. Like, right. Yeah. That's I mean, baseball. You, just, you. you just put another guy in scoring position. Yeah. You see? And that's so, where the baseball IQ kicks in. Yeah. So, I mean, I knew, I knew where my throw was and, you know, just so happened, you know, I got a 10 sometimes when I throw real hard like that, my ball just takes off. And I, as I threw it, I said, like, oh, I hope this ball don't go up and over, you know, but it was high. But Marty Castillo was playing third base and he brought it down and made that tag, you see. But it, it was a high throw, but Marty, you know, quick hands, see, that's what it takes at third base sometimes. You, you you can't be too quick, but you do have to be quick enough to get that ball and get it down to make yeah. to make that to make that tag. Because if you just catch it and slowly come down, see the man is gonna be safe. You gotta catch and and react. That's that's what third base and even a guy who's still in 
second base for a catcher. You got sometimes you have to catch and put. You got to you got to be quick with your hands. You know you can't just slowly do it. You know, game baseball is a is a very bang bang sort of <laughs> game. Yeah. So uh, that's my thing. And let me and that in in that series against San Diego, you get you score six runs in five games. The, the, if I got if I read this right, you talked about your incredible days. The day you win the series, game five, you guys win. One of your daughters is born. Yeah, Sarah. that's a hell of a day. That's a hell yeah, of a day. That, yeah, it was an awesome day. A day you never forget. Never forget. Forward ahead a couple of years, nineteen eighty seven. You guys have one of the most incredible pennant races of all time going into the last two weeks of the year with Toronto, you guys play each other seven times in those two weeks, six of the games are decided in the last inning. All seven are one run games, which is just incredible to include on the Sunday to end the regular season. Frank Tanana pitches a full game, one, nothing shutout on a Herndon home run. Just tell me about like the drama of, of being in a pennant race like that. I mean, that is just insanity. Well, you know, I'm going to start it off this way. We should have we shouldn't have never been there because Toronto Blue Jays had to be up at least seven, eight games going into the last week. They go into Milwaukee and lose four straight games. Now, if they only win one, see, our season, the season is over with, you know. So right. to really say if 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 I could put it this way, if I could say the Blue Jays lost eight out of the last 10 games. I'm just going to put it that way. But that's all they had to do is win one before all of this is taking place. Right. And basically, we'll say it's our season is over. You know what I mean? But as the Blue Jays are losing and we're winning, and then we come down to this final week, and uh, uh, I, I heard through the you know players and whatever, Milwaukee say they're not going to win it on our in our uh, city, right? Yeah. Okay, all right. So now Milwaukee beat them four straight games, and this is after George Bell and the Blue Jays has this incredible season. Now, sure. I mean, and so now they come in Detroit, just needing to win one game. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so anyway, we beat them all three games. I mean, basically, that was our playoff in World Series. Just what we had to go through just to get there. I was a, basically, I was exalted. Yeah. And so um, I used to tell people when we played the Minnesota Twins, you know, I, I've said, I said to myself, I don't know, for 25 years that I was 0 for 13 in those games. Cause I, you know, I thought Blue Jay, uh Minnesota beat us three straight games. They beat us twice in Detroit. Then we go to Minnesota and they beat us. First game, it's over. But somebody is telling me, say, Lou, you had like three hits in this series. You hit a home run. I, was like, I didn't hit no dog on home run. Never hit a home run in no playoff game. And I, I didn't have any hits in the playoff game. He said, Lou, yes, you did. Here it is right here on the thing. I say, but... I was over 14, you know what I mean? I, I didn't get a hit. I didn't get on base or anything. That's what I kept telling myself. And I mean, that's, you know, Tigers always went, or, you know, uh, you know, as I went, sort of, you know, kind of. It's like Pete Rose when Pete Rose, that's why he got 4,000 hits. That's why Cincinnati was always moving forward, you know what I mean? He made right. the man get 4,000 hits. The man hit 4,000 hits. <laughs> It's unbelievable. Four thousand hits, you man. People are proud just to get three thousand hits. Let's make it four thousand hits. Oh yeah. Um, speaking of career numbers, uh, you know, a, a couple of things jumped off the page at me when I was looking at, uh, you know, just the, you know, stats. First of all, you, Joe Morgan, and Rogers Hornsby are the only second baseman to have hit two hundred home runs, had a thousand RBIs, a thousand runs, and two thousand hits. It's a pretty select company. Also, you know, war obviously has become uh, a statistic that a lot of people pay attention to now. I calculated that you're around the 55th or 56th 
highest ranked position player of all time on war. You're tied with Johnny Bench. Um, I think there have been over 20,000 position players in, in baseball history, and you're at like number 55, which is just insane. The only guys ahead of you uh, who haven't been banned, you know, because of steroids or, you know, Pete Rose with the gambling um, are two guys, Bill Dolan and Jim McCormick, neither one of whom has played since 1911. Right. So 100 and, you know, whatever, 10 years ago. Um, and you're tied with Johnny Bench and there's only six second basemen uh, ahead of you. Uh, and again, only Morgan and Carew have played since 1942. So statistically you're in uh, like, you know, rarefied air. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, we talked, we touched at the very beginning about the hall of fame. It, to me, it's a matter of time. I mean, that those numbers, <clears throat> those numbers can't be ignored. Well, there's nothing I can say, nothing I can do is just, uh, you know, I mean, what I, what I did as a uh, player, that was my that was my joy right there. I mean, hey, you know, just imagine a little kid from Martinsville, Virginia, even somebody noticing him, saying that, oh man, this this kid got some ability, baseball ability. Somebody come down to watch me. Uh, somebody to sign me to play with their organization, get a chance to play, make to the major leagues. Play 19 years, a couple of years in minor leagues. Hey, that that's 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 what I wanted to do. I mean, I had an opportunity to do it. The rest, hey, uh, some some things are not in your hand. You know what I mean? You know, I'm not gonna sit at home and and whine. I mean, I I I, I did what I. Uh, you did uh, your part. Yeah, I did my part. I had I, you know, I played, I lo- played what I love to do, and hey, yeah. uh, just just imagine when it all said and done, someone else has the overall last word. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hey, well, well, you know, that's. I mean, that's that's there. I mean, here's here's my thing, Rich. With that, same people who vote, very few of them know what we went through to perform every day and each and every at bat that I did, each and every play that I did, each and every double play that I did, each and over each and every great play I did out of this world play I made, they didn't, they didn't see the half of it. And like, just too good to be true. <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> too good to be true. This guy's just too good to be true. You know, and again, and you brought it up, if it wasn't for war, my name wouldn't even been brought up 20 years ago, you know? When they started this war, let me say uh, 2020, that's when my first one was. That's when it would have ended in 20 or uh, 2000, 2000. Mm -hmm. See, I, I retired in 95, 2000 is when mine uh, Hall of Fame information come up. I didn't get but so much percentage, so I'm not even on the next, even next mentioning ballots or whatever, next phone calls. So it would have ended right there. And so now around 2010 or so, you know, somebody's on their computer crunching numbers and they're looking for somebody, trying to put somebody number up there and they keep running across this name Whitaker. What is his name doing in here? He don't he's supposed to be in this way. So they keep crunching over like Whitaker, what is number doing in there, man? Wait a minute, what's why this man's name keep coming up in all this and he's not even mentioned in the Hall of Fame. What is his name even in, in here? And so now you know people like yourself who keep in touch, keep people informed and like, man, I got people out there right now said, man, there ain't no way in the world this guy is not supposed to be in the Hall of Fame. How can you do this? And you know, now I'm never gonna question my, my partner, you know, I'm not, never gonna break that up. But how can you say the greatest double play combination? No, but, you, you both know, deserve to be in. That's And that's what he said too. He's like, I, I'm honored to be here. He's like, I just, I can't believe he's not here. 
So, Lou Whitaker, I have to say thank you so much for coming on Chasing Hardware. So great talking about your days growing up in Virginia, obviously coming up through the Tiger system, you know, the, the most incredible double play combination of all time and that that unbelievable 84 championship team. And just, you know, kind of hearing all the anecdotes along the way. Uh, a lot of fun to be on the on uh, Chasing Hardware with you today. Thank you so much for your time. All right, Rich. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care, man. Anyway, thanks, man. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.